Uh, this morning, we, um, we're going to look at a really strange passage. It's a really odd miracle because it appears at first reading that Jesus doesn't get it done. You know, Marshall Keeble used to say, Jesus was the doctor who never lost the case. But in this instance, it seems like he doesn't get it done. He doesn't win it. In fact, it seems like there's got to be a second surgery. Or, or we, we would probably say today, for it to be effective, there's got to be vaccine number two. So look at me with Mark chapter 8. What a great story we're going to look at today. Mark chapter 8, verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand, and he led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes, just stop there for a second. That's sort of weird, isn't it? Why is Jesus spitting on this guy's eyes? This isn't even like some of the miracles where he spits on the mud, and then he puts it in the eyes. There's no power in Jesus' lava. But, but what Jesus is trying to do is let this blind man know what's going on with him. So he spits on his eyes and put his hands on him. And Jesus asks, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. It's not too clear yet, Jesus. Here's the second surgery. Once more, Jesus put his hand on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were open, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. We finally get to 2020 vision. Now we gotta ask, why is this story here? Let me give you a few reasons. First of all, it just happens to be true. And one thing you like about the Bible is it doesn't try to make the characters seem any better than they are. And here we have the perfect character of Jesus who seems on surface to not actually get the whole miracle done in one shot. So you love that about Scripture. Second, it's just so timely. Uh, it's right here in the middle of the book of Mark. Somebody tell me, how many chapters are there in the book of Mark? 16, who said that? Congratulations, hitting horn <laughs> nose. Okay, Mark chapter 16, there's 16 chapters. This is chapter 8. You say, buddy, what's that got to do with anything? This miracle is here, right in the middle of Mark. And it's more than just a miracle. It actually is a parable that teaches something. Because here's what's going on. The disciples aren't getting it. They need a second touch. For instance, just a little bit back, Jesus has fed 5,000. Just on the spot. Each disciple had a basket left for himself. Okay, they, they've seen that. Then they run into a smaller crowd. There's 4,000. And they look to Jesus and say, what do we do? I mean, I mean they, they panic. They don't go, hey, Jesus, we understood what you did back there. Do it again. And so right here, they're not getting it very well. And so right in the middle of the book, there's this moment that says, you need a second touch. You're not understanding. Listen to some of the words Jesus has said to these guys. You still don't understand? This would be offensive. Are you so dull? How about this one? Do you have eyes? Well, they do, but they're not clearly seen. They're seen like the blind man after the first touch. And specifically what they're not seeing. 
chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, Jesus talks about the cross. And it blows their mind. It, it's like they, they, it's so beyond their imagination, they cannot fathom it. Now, we're going to see in a minute, they believe he's the Messiah. Okay. But what they don't grasp is that he is a Messiah who would die on a cross. What they expected was a Messiah to overthrow the Romans and set his throne up in Jerusalem. And what Jesus says is, this is the humble Messiah. You see, we love Isaiah 53 because it talks about the suffering servant. They had never in this moment put Isaiah 53 together with the Messiah. So it's just, it blows their mind. They just can't get it. It's like us a year ago in the pandemic. Most of us really didn't understand what that was going to mean because we had never lived through it. We didn't realize how severe it could be. Personally, I'll tell you, it didn't hit me that I started knowing people who died. Then it got real. In fact, at the beginning, I thought we'll be through this thing in two or three weeks. How about you? I mean, it's a good hint. It's not too big. I didn't know we're going to go through these masks and vaccines and social distancing and all the stuff we've been through. Because we had nothing to compare it to in our lifetime. That's the position the disciples are in. They know Jesus is special. They hope he's the Messiah. But they cannot understand the kind of Messiah he's going to be. So this chapter is strategically placed here to say, you're just like this blind man. You see a little bit, but you don't see it all. And we got to admit here, it's timeless. You know, we can get down on these early disciples here because they're not seeming to put things together. But guess who they remind me of? Myself. How about you? How many times have I prayed about something and I've seen God do a mighty miracle and I get to the next problem and I don't even remember that? How many times have you learned a lesson from Scripture and you had to be retaught it? How many sins did you stop sinning and it came back? How many times have you found yourself so close to God and six months later you feel so distant you don't even remember it? You see, guys, we need this story because we too need second touches. Our eyes need to be opened. Let me give you four things from this story that our eyes need to be open to. Number one, the probability of spiritual blindness. That's what's going on in chapter, chapter 10. Chapter 8, excuse me. There are insiders, the disciples who are blind, verses 1 through 10. There are outsiders, the Pharisees, who are blind to what Jesus is doing, verses 11 through 20. That's where we find this. Now, please, please pay close attention to what I'm about to say. The way the devil defeats us, whether you're an unbeliever or a believer, is through blindness. The Bible says that Satan works across the world to blind the sight of unbelievers. In 1 Peter chapter 1, speaking to believers, it says, you guys need to wake up because you're nearsighted and blind. That's the way he works on insiders and outsiders. If you don't see the truth, you'll never live by the truth. Let me illustrate this with a simple illustration. What is our view of mankind, of men and women? The modern American view is that we're all good. Basically, we even say this sometimes. I've been guilty. At heart, I know they're good. At heart, everybody's good. If we can just dig deeper, long enough, just get them in the right position. 
Guess what? Here's what the Bible says. There are none good, no, not one. The scriptural view of mankind is that we are all not good sinners in trouble. You got that? He said, what's the big deal about thinking they're good or not? It just changes everything. If you think at heart we're all pretty good people, then you think there are different solutions. If we could just get people, you know, growing up in the right environment, living in the right environment. If we could just, um, you know, if we could just inform them about what's available out there and counseling and different things. And I believe in all these things, guys. But, but, but if you believe man's good, all you got to do, you believe you just got to do a little bit of reform. Just make them a little better so the goodness finally comes out. So that solution, guess what? It never works. You, you see, when you see it God's way and you say, hey, the truth is we're all sinful in our nature. We're all bad. We all have a propensity to sin. Then the solution is different. I don't need to be reformed. I need to be reborn. I don't need a new lesson. I need a savior. It's completely different. And so what Satan wants to do is to blind us to our own sinfulness. Even sometimes I catch myself doing the same thing. Oh, you know, I just got this struggle. I've got an issue. I've got a problem. Shouldn't have done that. Where what I need to be saying is, oh no, that was sinful. That was repugnant to God, and sin can separate you from God. You need a Savior. And that brings us to number two. What's the path to spiritual clarity? How does it happen in this guy's life? Now, I think the most important point here, guys, I think that Mark is trying to to get to us as he writes this is that spiritual growth is a process okay it it, it comes in stages what what we want to believe is spiritual growth is like financial security it comes with a lottery i mean you win the lottery five million dollars everything's over you don't have to worry about it again well guess what even the lottery is paid in installments never experienced that but that's what i hear okay it got spiritually, we want it, we want it all just to happen. God just to zap me. And I think where we get this is we see the conversion of Saul of Tarsus to be Paul. I mean, it appears that that one just happened on the spot. He's going down the road, blinded, baptized, everything's different. Well, we don't take into account there's a long period of time the Bible doesn't talk about when he was in Arabia. But anyway, we sort of take that as the model. Because I'll tell you, a, a clearer model is Simon Peter's model. Because we watch Simon Peter, and he's up, and he's down, and he's up, and he's down. He's saying the right thing, saying the wrong thing. I mean, you watch Peter, and you see that his growth is not instantaneous like we would like. It is moment by moment, stage by stage. It's a process. And now here's what Satan's going to do. If you don't understand this, and you become a Christian, he's going to make you think you're not really a Christian. He's going to make you doubt the power of God. He's going to make you doubt yourself. Where what you need to understand is all of us simply need to take the next step. Wherever you are spiritually this morning, there is always a next step to take. 
So spiritual clarity comes in process, but it also comes in community. You know, we looked at that story a few weeks ago, that moment where those men, four men, lowered their their friend on the mat for Jesus to heal him. And I've heard so many conversations since there that we don't all have the spiritual friends that we ought to have. And we get to this miracle. This blind man would not have gotten to Jesus except his friends brought him. You see, in America, we want to believe it's all individualistic. Even spiritually, we talk about having a quote-unquote personal relationship with Jesus. I don't really have to have you guys for that. It's just me and Jesus. Now, that sounds nice, but that's far into Scripture. Scripture says we change and are transformed in community. Spiritual growth doesn't happen solo. It takes friendship. It takes encouragement. It takes some accountability. It takes Bible study. Because do you realize that when this was written, everybody didn't have their own individual copy to go home and study? That's a great thing. But Scripture was studied in community. The letter was read in front of everybody. And I'm telling you, studying Scripture in community keeps all of us from going in the wrong directions. I can get off on my own and come up with this crazy thing that's never corrected by the truth of Scripture by you. Because what happens is, in character, in understanding, we all have these blind spots. And the problem is when you have a blind spot, you can't see it without the help of someone else. So don't live in denial. You, you can't be like the alcoholic who says, you know, I know I drink a lot, but I'm not addicted. And fill in this blank. I can stop it anytime I want to. <laughs> and guys, many of us spiritually, we know we're not where we should be. We know we're lukewarm. We know we're not using our spiritual gifts. We know we're not on fire for God. But we think this thing is, you know what, you know, anytime I want to, no, no, no. You're going to have to have people that are going to encourage you to take that next step. And most importantly in this process, you need a Savior. That's point number three. Here's the person with clarity. It's Jesus. It's not until you you get with Jesus that life becomes 20-20 clear. You see, understand here again, the disciples are not completely blind. They're partially blind. They can see partly. For instance, go back to Mark chapter 8 with me. Look at these these first verses, verse 27. They get it right. Even Peter gets it right here. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others still one of the prophets. And here's the most important question anyone has ever been asked. Questions. But what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter raises his hand and gets it right. You are the Messiah. You better stop and clap there. They got that point. Okay? They understand he's doing something special. They understand he's the Messiah. But then we go a couple of verses later, and this blows their mind. Verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, 
and that he must be killed. And three days later, rise again. He spoke plainly about this. You see how much they objected? And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine that? It is so unfathomable to them that when Jesus even brings it up, they're like, Jesus, this is not right. The Messiah doesn't die. He's on a throne. And Jesus knows they got this wrong, so he's got to be tough. When Jesus, then Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, and now he rebuked Peter. Talk about a rebuke. Get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter, you're looking at this through human eyes, not through spiritual eyes. So they struggled with that. And my friends, I think that's the struggle that you and I still have. I, I want Jesus as my Savior. I want him to be my Messiah. Absolutely. But do I really want this next teaching here? Look at verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Now we're further along than the disciples. We're okay with him dying because we know that's the, our salvation. But what I'm uncomfortable with is after he dies, he turns to me and says, buddy, you got to die. In, in fact, what he teaches is so countercultural. What he says is, if you really want life and life to the fullest, then you got to lose yourself. That's so counterintuitive. Everything about life and America and everything says to us the best life for the people who can line up everything right. Everything goes your way. Like we talked about last, last week, the best life is someone to serve you dinner, not for you to serve them dinner. And yet we find people absolutely miserable. And Jesus said, if you find it, if you're looking for it for yourself, if you walk in this church this morning worried about who speaks to you and who doesn't speak to you, if you go in your home counting how much your spouse did and how much you did, you're going to be absolutely miserable. But if you can die to yourself, you're going to find life. Because it, it happens in such small things. Um, Stephanie and I have taken five of our grandchildren to Callaway Gardens area this weekend, Okay. So I'm really enjoying being at church with you guys this morning. This is a, a, a really nice time. But we're in this motorhome, you know, and it's seven of us, and we're packed. And yesterday morning, we went out and went to the big butterfly place, and it was so cool, and kids enjoyed it. And then we'd been swimming, we'd done this and that, and then finally we get them in the afternoon, you know, and you know the little ones quickly fall asleep, then the big ones aren't going to fall asleep. Just, you just got to show them Lion King, Okay. And so Stephanie actually goes back and she takes a nap and I couldn't take a nap. And so I'm just sitting there. I work on my sermon for a little while and then, you know, I just don't have anything to do. And I don't want to watch the Lion King for the 500th time. You know what I'm saying? And, and so I'm just thinking, what, what do you, again, it just hit me. Why don't you clean up? 
why don't you go pick all those sleeping bags up that are all over the floor? Why don't you get the trash out where it belongs? Why don't you go to the sink and wash all those dishes? Then my, my flesh side says, wait till Stephanie wakes up, we'll do it together. Or maybe better, she'll do it. And I, please don't applaud me here because normally I don't pick the right thing. But yesterday I picked just to do it. And I will guarantee you, if I'd sat there and read my book or watched the Lion Kings, or what, I would have been near satisfied is when I served. It's just that simple. When you finally get out of the way, that's when you find life. Too often we're going about it the wrong way. And so we're blinded. So here's what I want to get to today. Here's the good news. is the possibility of a second touch. This story wasn't written just for those guys back then. It was written for us and put right here in the middle of the gospel to wake us up to truth. So this morning, if you're blinded, if you're stalled in your spiritual life, if worse yet, you're drifting, if you're struggling, if you're caught in a sin, if you feel like you've only been partially healed, partially saved, if you feel like you got Jesus but you don't have his power, Listen closely to me. God still gives second touches. Amen? God gives second touches. And guys, so many of us need this. Let me get a real specific illustration and we'll close out. Pre-pandemic, most of us, when it came to coming to church, we just, I was talking to some friends this week, we just, we just knew Sunday morning we were at church. I just, there wasn't a debate. It wasn't a question. Post-pandemic, some of you are watching online with me. I want you to stay with me. Those of you here, I saw about three families back at 8.30 service for the first time this morning. That's awesome. But post-pandemic, now that we have this online option, and let me first of all say this, I love the online option. It's going to bless us this summer. We, we've got families today that are down on the Gulf Coast, and they're worshiping with us, and they're feeling a connection. I love that. But as for a weekly basis, does it take the place of us being in community and us being together? I don't really think so. And so now, because for so many months that was all we could do, I see a lot of us, man, you'd rather just stay home in your pajamas and watch it online. Let me just go and give you permission. You can wear your pajamas to church if that helps, okay? (laughs) And so what's happened now is... It's a question. Are we going to church or not? And I can tell you what I've told people for a long time. If you have to wake up every Sunday and wonder if you're going to church or not, most Sundays you will not go to church. Because it's easier just to turn over and sleep. It's easier just to do something. It's easier just to find a hobby. So what we need, guys, is use this new online thing for its glory to stay connected But we need this second touch that says, the way you grow is in community. In fact, um, last night we were at this fireworks show. And, um, you know, it's Eastern time over there, which makes no sense, okay? And so so you can't really do the fireworks till 930. So the kids have been up since about 530. All right, that's that's the way they they roll. And so um, so we're we're out at you know Callaway Gardens Lake waiting on the fireworks and 
it was, it was beautiful, but I, I'm just sitting on a bench watching the kids play on the playground, and this lady comes to sit beside me, and, and we get in this conversation. And um, finally, she finds out I'm from Montgomery. She's from around there, and I'm a preacher, and she still talked to me. It was really cool. And so we, uh, we, 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 we kept talking, and she, um, so she asked me, what do you, so I told her, I said, I'm going back tomorrow, and I'm going to come back. She said, well, what are you preaching on? And I said, well, I'm doing this cool little weird story in Mark chapter 8 about the second touch. And she said, let's talk about it for a minute. And so I, I talk all about it. And then she just messed me up. She said, okay, how do you get the second touch? I'm like, I hadn't thought about that. That should have been in the sermon. That's not in my outline. Don't blow it for me. How do you get the second touch? And so I've had all morning on the way here to think about it from this story. Here's how you get the second touch. You you get it, first of all, in community. You get it when you have people enough to say, I want you to go see Jesus. You got this problem? Let's get on our knees together. We're going to have to have people. Second, and this is the key, you only can get the second touch if you hang out with Jesus. That's why we're doing this series right now over a few months, moments, because that's where it happens. You say, I've heard these stories. Okay, I have too. But I need a second time. I need to see Jesus freshly. I can't just live on the past. And so what we're trying to do right now is every week just encounter Jesus and see how radical he was and how different he was and how he convicts us and how right he is. He still gives second touches. In fact, he gives third touches and fourth touches and a hundred touches if you need it. And then the last thing I would say to the lady's question, you need to be in community, hanging out with Jesus, and you need to always be looking for your next step. See, why did this blind man, after the first miracle, had said, hey man, I see good, really good. Dude, he's going to be running over people and running into trees the rest of his life, okay? Thank goodness he goes, it's, oh, it's better, but it." It's not where it needs to be, Jesus. Give me the, my next step is you need to lay hands on me again. Stop the spitting business, but lay hands on me again. So I ask you right now, where are you? You're never going to stand still. Just say that. You've got to have the next step. What is your next step? And your next step might be this morning to come to this front row and say, Guys, I'm not doing it on my own very well. I've been trying to change this for a long time. I need some community. And I need you guys to all pray that I'll get this second touch. He still gives second touches. If you'd like to get one before you walk out of here, come right now while we stand and sing.